coming up this hour, the president's uh, COVID task force talking about masks. And then Jonathan Carswell, CEO of 10ofthose.com, will be joining us. You're listening to The Common Good. Everybody, welcome to the Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you joining us today. Uh, you can find us on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show, Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk, online 1160hope.com, uh, and get our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review. Uh, Ian, I'm back. I'm grateful that you uh, that you. Uh, uh, took over the show with some great guests for the better part of a week, but it's good to be back, man. Yeah, welcome back. You wanna you wanna give us a little teaser? How was the how was the trip? Uh, it was awesome. Really? <laughs> and so, yeah, it was. Uh, we went with some of my wife's family. They rented a house in Nantucket, so off of Massachusetts, and it was walking distance from the beach. It was a beach house. It was wow. uh, the weather was perfect. I'm gonna make y'all jealous now. The weather was perfect. We just sat and read and jumped waves and went out to eat, rinse, <laughs> rinse, repeat, right? Every day. Awesome. And uh, it was awesome. There were some strange parts to the week, like uh, flying in an airplane for the first time since COVID. Yeah. And yesterday, uh, so we flew from Nantucket to Washington, D.C., and then from D.C. to Illinois, from to Chicago. And uh, our flight from uh, D.C. to Chicago in the main cabin where it should have been you know, there could probably be 100, 100 plus people on there. We counted eight people, including the five people from my family. No <laughs> so, kidding. It was eerie, man. Like when we got to baggage claim our bag, they weren't running it around something. It was just sitting out. They're like, here you go. <laughs> and so wow, uh, it was weird, you know, being masked all day. But, oh, it was such a fun family trip. It was so good to get away. And uh, again, the weather was perfect. I, I've told you this before. I'm an ocean guy. I'm a beach guy. So right. to just sit and stare at the ocean and swim in the waves. It was awesome. It really was. And so it is, I was ready to come home yesterday, but uh, it was, uh, it was everything I had hoped it would be. So how was your week without me? You had some phenomenal guests, which always makes me uh, really <laughs> excited. It makes me really excited about the show. And then like, uh, I don't know, I got to go back and follow that. <laughs> yeah, man. Just, just when I think every, every week of guest hosts can't get any better, like mm-hmm. every, every single time they always, they always blow me away. And it was, you know, it was a really diverse lineup. It was people with all sorts of different backgrounds and experiences doing different kinds of jobs in different parts of the world. If, uh, if you were not with us at all last week, I would encourage you. Go ahead and check out the podcast because there was some there was some really really wonderful yeah. interviews. Yeah, I I forgot that you're friends with uh, one of the people from Five Iron Frenzy. I was like, oh man, that's pretty cool. <laughs> so, oh, yeah, I'm just, I'm I'm just glad that you know who Five Iron Frenzy is. I do, I do, and so uh, really grateful. I know Ian is for all of you who f- who filled in while I was gone. So really grateful for that. And yeah. it always reminds me that you know a very eclectic uh, group of people. Like people might think. <laughs> Uh, I mean, those are people you're contacting and getting to fill in and obviously with the help of our producer, John and others, but uh, it's just your eclectic crowd. So I'm uh, it was fun even to be away and see the Facebook posts of people like, hey, great show. You got to listen to this. And I'm like, OK, uh, <laughs> good stuff. So but I, it is good to be back. And I don't know if you feel this when you've ever taken some time off that it's like, oh, I want to talk about that. Oh, I want to talk about that. <laughs> you got yeah, no one to talk totally. to. My, my wife got tired of me just talking to her about different news things. So uh, 
uh, one of the things where I wanted to start is something we've been talking about for the last four months, kind of where we started our show is with COVID and talking about the coronavirus pandemic. And I found this really interesting. This was uh, uh, some sound from a call with governors uh, where Dr. Deborah Burks, who, you know, she's the one on uh, the White House's um, coronavirus task force team. She's become well known because she's always wearing scarves, <laughs> scarves. Right. And right. so uh, she uh, said uh, essentially uh, to the governors that they need to mandate masks. And this was very interesting for people that um, at best, the White House has been really lukewarm about masks, sometimes just downright against them. Uh, and so for the for somebody from that task force to be telling the governors uh, you need to be wearing masks and mandating it before your state gets to a bad spot. I was excited to hear that. But also, uh, I know somebody on our Facebook page said, yeah, it's great. Only five months late. Like, yeah. uh, you know, so I had some mixed feelings, but I, you know how I feel about masks. Like, I was at least happy that, that that's the message being put out to the governors. Yeah, a couple other comments we had on our Facebook page. So Michael says he agrees. Mel says, so Trump is starting to be proactive right before the election. Imagine that. So she's not necessarily buying the whole narrative, I imagine. Calvin Robinson, who we had on the show a couple weeks ago, he says, there are some things the federal government should not delegate. In order to affect a coordinated, uniform national response that yield a uniform result, we're going to need the federal government to get off the sidelines and do some governing. I would love to know your thoughts on that statement, Brian. Do you, uh, do you find that to be closer to where you land with all this? It is. And I know it, part of it becomes what do you think the role of the federal government is? Because I think it was just today uh, where uh, William Barr, the attorney general, said, no, we believe that uh, that everything should be running through the governors. I think that in my personal opinion, I think if from day one we had a stronger uh, national federal uh, response, I think we would have been better off. Although, you know, as we've seen, I'm not sure we could have pulled it off because every state kind of has its own mindset on these things. Because right now, you know, all the states are doing different things. Like uh, my kid's school, my, my daughter's high school, it looks like rumor is that they're about to come down and change their plan to be all remote. And then a state that's doing worse than ours, Indiana, I'm seeing friends posting pictures of their kids getting on school buses today to start school. Right. And so right. it is just a weird time where I do wish I, it might not just be the way we're set up to be. Right. But I do wish uh, that we would have from day one been able to go, listen, uh, here's what we're going to do. And we're going to attack this thing. But it's just not the way we work. Uh, it's certainly not the way that the Trump administration wants this to work. Uh, but it is weird. You know, everyone. It's not just states wrestling with school questions right now. Take schools, for instance. It's literally district to district. Right. Uh, people up the road doing different things than my kids are doing. And so it's all really strange. And for me, that lack of cohesion uh, not only worries me, but gives me um, some pause in thinking that we're ever really going to get in front of this. Uh, hopefully we do. But, yeah, I wish I wish there was more of kind of a we're all in this together and here's what the whole country's doing um, what do you think about that? <laughs> well, How do you feel? Uh, I'm just hoping and praying we're almost out of time. No, we're, <laughs> I mean, not even not even just federal, state, and district. We're also going to talk a little later in the show about how churches are navigating it. You right. know, I'm in Naperville, and churches in Naperville aren't even uniform in how we're approaching it or what, which makes that's a, that's a different level of trickiness because I imagine you have some of this. Like we have people who are saying, well, the church over here is doing this or the church – 
you know, right. in the town over, like there, there can become a little bit of, it hasn't gotten quite to the point where someone has said to me, at least personally, Hey, unless we do this, I'm going to go somewhere else. I haven't quite seen that bubbling up, right. but I, I predict a little bit of it. Like, well, Hey, if you're going to continue to not make the decision or make this decision, regardless of where you land on the issue, I'm, I'm going to have to make a choice elsewhere. I, uh, I do find it interesting that it doesn't seem like there's easy blanket solutions, though, either way, because you're right. Some states that have had much looser regulations, looser restrictions, we're seeing an increase again. We're seeing spikes. But that's not all of them, though. There, there are also states that had loose regulations that seem to have flattened the curves. So you're like, uh, so what do you I mean, obviously, there's some population density factors in there, too. But that kind of further complicates it, doesn't it? You're like, well, all right. Yeah, sure. We saw this in, uh, like you said, in Indiana or, or in Tennessee or in Texas, but right. we've not seen that in all of the ones that were loose. So what do you do with that? Yeah, it's, it is, it is. if nothing else, though, when you start to look at the maps, it's at least worrisome. When you look at the maps yeah, and the charts, right. I'd encourage people to go Google. Uh, today, Governor Pritzker came out with some stuff about youth sports uh, that is going to affect a lot of people. And uh, yeah, hopefully uh, we can get ahead of this. Well, coming up next... Uh, Eric Metaxas uh, said something uh, interesting about Jesus that many people uh, had an issue with. We're going to talk about that next year on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope. <music> Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Grateful for you joining us today on this Wednesday afternoon. Find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk online 1160hope.com and as always get our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast subscribe rate review that really does help us and uh, we're just excited as people find the podcast Uh, we talked about it in the last segment but i was gone all last week today's my first day back uh, and ian just had a great co-host after a great co-host and so you're going to want to go back and hear those uh, I don't even try to call them interviews, just discussions. Yeah. Uh, each person, each person was with you for an hour. Uh, so that's uh, 12 different uh, wonderful co-hosts. So I would, if ever there's a reason for you to get to the podcast, uh, that is a good reason for you to do that. Uh, well, Eric Metaxas, uh, he of uh, fame of writing uh, kind of the biggest biography on Dietrich Bonhoeffer, also a Christian radio show host. Uh, he is a well-known person, uh, not just in the Christian world, but he is a, he is a staunch um, supporter of President Trump. Uh, and so Eric Metaxas, uh, he tweeted something over the weekend uh, that got a lot of eyes on it, and uh, a lot of people had a hard time with it. So uh, this was in response to a tweet that said the United Methodist Church has enlisted Robin D'Angelo to produce a series of videos on deconstructing white privilege. Uh, so that's United Methodist Church. Metaxas, in reply, he tweeted this. Jesus was white. Did he have, quote, white privilege, even though he was entirely without sin? Is the United Methodist Church covering that? I think it could be important. So uh, that started flying around. Uh, but, Ian, I, I know that you saw that tweet. When you first saw that tweet, uh, was it, oh, he's just mistaken or he's stirring the pot? What is the problem with that tweet? How did you know that I saw that tweet? I thought, didn't you reply to it? Maybe not. Maybe oh, not. Maybe I, I don't assumed. think. 
Maybe no, I, I assumed you saw that tweet. I legitimately saw it and thought, I'm not even going to touch that one. I'm oh, not good a, for you. <laughs> I'm not even I not to pat myself on the back, Brian, but I felt like nope, no, I'm not I'm not gonna bite. Before I weigh in on what will likely be a predictable response from me, if you've been been with us for any length of time, a little bit later in the day, he retweeted yes. uh, Rich Stearns, who said Jesus like likely looked like modern day Palestinians, not Scandinavian. And here was his sort of like pseudo explanation. This is from Eric Metaxas, not Ian Simpkins. He said, so it's about how you look, about the actual color of your skin. So most Jews today are, quote, white and have, quote, white privilege, but some don't. Who decides? Are Steven Spielberg and Woody Allen not white? My point is that these identities only seem to apply when woke people say they do. So mm-hmm. to your initial question about him being mistaken or trying to stir the pot, I do actually think he was just trying to stir the pot i, do I too. think now uh to the core of the matter i think it's a terrible tweet i think <laughs> i think it's a, i think that's an awful idea for so many reasons i've seen so many smarter people respond some with a little more fire than others you know we're referencing this article from relevant but there are a lot of people who have written this i don't even remember how old this was this is just a couple of days old right right um, yeah it is bizarre to me that someone of his stature would think that's a good idea, right? Like I liked Beth Moore's response. She says, you can have white Santa if you must, but you can't have white Jesus. Nope. Sorry. Can't. And here's what I want, want to know. Why the heck do you want one? Why can't we just go with the Jesus we got? Um, <laughs> which is a pretty good response. And uh, Bernice King had a great response, but a bunch of people, and a lot of it's, you know, listed here in the, in the relevant article, but I I don't, who knows, I'm not in his head, but I don't think he actually thinks Jesus is what we we maybe call Caucasian. Uh, But like, okay, I like this response from Rich Velodas, we've referenced a number of times. He says, this is what you call theological malpractice. When Jesus lived, white people didn't exist. Why? Because white was a category later created to assert dominance through illusory uh, notions of superiority. Jesus knows nothing of this. Do better. Bonhoeffer is not pleased. So... I mean, that's a little more fiery, like I mentioned, um, but a lot of the responses here listed are in that same vein. And I think for good reason, to be honest, it it seemed irresponsible at very best, personally. I, how did it hit you? Yeah, at first, this is why, uh, you know, later Metaxas tweeted to somebody else, don't worry, Brian, I don't really think of him as white, but I enjoy helping people think about how they think of him and of other Jewish people whom they believe have, quote, white privilege. Uh, uh, when he first said it, I didn't think of it as as him trying to stir the pot. I was like, wow, he's just wrong. Like he. Oh, actually really? Thinks, yeah. And that's that, you know, that speaks to the lack of clarity of it. Right. Um and it did get me thinking, like, who's he trying to what is he trying to say with this? Like, right, what is cool. even what's even the point? If he knows Jesus wasn't white, uh, then then what are we trying to get at here? Um, and I, you know, I think some of these people touched on it. Um, but maybe, uh, you know, I, I had a hard time even trying to garner the point that he was trying to make here. And so other than stirring the pot and trying to kind of deflect a little bit, I guess what I did want to ask you, because you've talked about this before, is what about the people out there who are like, who cares what color Jesus was? If you oh, want boy. him to be black, let him be black. If you want him to be white, let him be white. If you want him to be, 
Asian, let them be Asian. What would you say to people? Because you and I did an article or two about the different imagery of Jesus through the generations and through different cultures. Uh-huh. Uh, what, what would you say to people if they brought up to you, is that a big deal at all? Yeah, I think if you're talking about artistic depictions, I think that's really important because ultimately Jesus, the Logos of God, one of three in the Trinity. I mean, there's there's mm-hmm. a, a transcendence of race and skin and melanin in Jesus, but you also can't get around that the incarnate Jesus um, was born in a particular place at a particular time. Like that's that's just true. So part of what frustrates me is like his explanation is sort of the tweet that I read about well, he's trying to sort of pull back in his mind the veil that these identities only seem to apply when woke people say they do. There are better ways to engage mm-hmm. in that dialogue than by simply saying Jesus is white or Jesus was white or whatever. However you say that, I think that that raises it just is provocation in an unhelpful way. And I know that provocation yeah. isn't always a bad thing to be a provocateur can sometimes be very, very helpful in reframing discussions. But I think, I think it is really important. Yeah. That, uh, that various different cultures see or experience or acknowledge like depictions of Jesus that represent, you know, their narrative or their heritage or their story. I think that that, I think that there can be significance to that. Uh, we talked a little, a couple of weeks ago about how when one becomes aggressively dominant, that can also be become a problem, but I don't think that's what Metaxas was doing. And again, I don't know. Right. He's not he's not in my head and I'm not in his. And maybe we maybe we can have him on the show and ask him sometime. Yeah, it would be fascinating. I think it obviously was in reply to a tweet about the United Methodist Church and white privilege. So it was obviously a reply to white privilege, which I, you and I have said uh, is a very hot topic right now and something that we should be wrestling with. And mm-hmm. so, uh, like you said, there were many, many better ways he could have gone about trying to wrestle with that subject with people, but it is something we all need to be wrestling with today and it causes great emotion. And so uh, we would love to know what you think. This is already up on our Facebook page. There has been some traction on it on our Facebook page, the common good radio show. You can find it there and we would love to know your thoughts coming up next. We are going to be joined by Jonathan Carswell. Jonathan is the CEO of 10 of those things.com. Uh, We're going to talk to Jonathan next about that organization here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you joining us today. Uh, We always talk about how we enjoy being joined by guests, whether in studio or over the phone. And uh, with that in mind, we are really excited to be joined by the CEO of 10ofthose.com, Jonathan Carswell. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Great to be with you. Absolutely. Why don't you introduce yourself to our audience, however you see fit? Yeah, well, um, I've been involved in a ministry for a little while now called 10ofthose.com. As um, as you might um, guess from my accent, I'm not from around here. I'm <laughs> originally a Brit, uh, so I hope you can understand me without subtitles. But um, uh, yeah, it, uh, 10ofthose.com is a um, Christian ministry seeking to get um, good books that hold to the Bible, read by as many people as possible. It uh, began as a hobby in my bedroom um, and uh, just grew really for, from there. And um, for the last decade or so in the UK, we've been seeking to get out uh, books that point people to Jesus. It's it's our belief, it's my belief that 
um, as people read books that point them to Jesus, they can change your life. And so our passion is to to seek to get those out. And so we uh, moved over here, my wife and uh, and family, uh, about a year ago to set up the ministry over here. And we provide uh, online uh, a bookstore, but also for churches and events, pop up bookstores hmm. with uh, with great books that uh, we can get out to uh, to the church and beyond uh, to those who aren't yet Christians as well. Oh, that's great. We've been reading a lot the last year or so about the significance between like a physical book and digital reading. I, I'd be curious to know if you have an opinion about that. Yeah, I think um, whatever helps you read. Um, I don't really have a preference in terms of if you're reading good stuff that um, makes much of Jesus, read it on whatever device or means uh, you can. Yeah. For me, though, I think the physical is really important for two reasons both discipleship and evangelism. It's mm. very hard to pass on a digital addition to uh, maybe somebody that you're uh, helping grow in the, in the faith or, mm. or your neighbor or a colleague at work who isn't yet a Christian. Whereas giving them a physical book, uh, you, can, you can do that. And so I'm, uh, I'm perhaps biased towards the physical. Yeah, Jonathan, I'm wondering, uh, with the rise of you know Twitter and social media and blogs, sometimes you start to hear that we as a culture are reading less, right? We, we don't have the patience to read books. Uh, are you finding that to be true? And if not, why do you think books still resonate with people? Yeah, it's a great question. I am not sure we're reading less. I just think we're we're reading shorter, if I can put it that way. So mm-hmm. we want it in a shorter burst. We want it in a hundred whatever characters it is, mm-hmm. rather than a longer chapter. Certainly, more books are being sold today than have ever been sold before. So wow. either people just like shopping, or uh, or people are still reading. On average, if you read for fifteen minutes a day, you'll read twenty books a year. And uh, and if the book's got pictures in, you'll read even more. So um, <laughs> it's, uh, little and often uh, is a great way to to get into uh, to get into reading uh, and the habit of it. Uh, going back to what I said of why we do it, it's to make much of Jesus. And I think as Christians, we are people of the book, and so um, we want to be reading the Bible, God's Word first and foremost. But books can do so much in helping us grow in our Christian faith, and so. Whether it's little and often, or or, or lengthy and uh, and infrequent, we must be reading good stuff that points us to Jesus. That almost sounds like a philosophy that one might give if they're wanting to get into fitness, right? Like, hey, you don't have to go run a marathon today; just run consistently, run a little bit each day, and then and almost like kind of grows like a muscle. I, I'd love to know how does your uh, organization actually partner with churches? Like, I love the mission, I love the vision. How how does it actually work? Well, I think one of the challenges today is how do people know what to buy and and where do they access it? Sure, you can jump online and buy anything you like, but how do you know it's good and going to serve uh, serve your Christian health well? And so we partner with churches where we'll come, perhaps for a Sunday service um, when we're not uh, on lockdown, or perhaps mm. for a, a retreat or a, a weekend away, that sort of thing. And we will come and bring a large bookstore where everything's been handpicked so we know it's good and holds to the Bible. Wow. We'll make some recommendations as part of the service or the the weekend program, and uh, and then we'll be on hand to to give people advice as to to what to buy and what would work for their situation or their age and stage. And it doesn't cost anything, and uh, and we do it. And all the books are are discounted, 
And in fact, we use our profits to support missions around the world by providing wow. resources to those who otherwise wouldn't, uh, couldn't afford it. And wow. so uh, we often say that shopping with us is a little like tithing uh, because <laughs> your, uh, your purchase helps support ministries around the world. And so, yeah, if people want to get in touch with us, we'd love to support them with getting good books out to their church and, uh, and wider church family. That's awesome. Uh, that other voice hearing is Jonathan Carswell, CEO of 10ofthose.com. That's the number 10, 10ofthose.com. Jonathan, I'm, I'm curious of your own story. What role as you were growing up and learning about the faith, you said you came to faith at the age of 16, uh, as you were growing in your faith, what role did good books, as you put it, play in your life? Yeah, well, I remember the summer that I became a Christian. I read the biography of Hudson Taylor, who um, went to China uh, and uh, he famously said, if I had a thousand lives, I'd, I'd give them all to China. And I think right mm. from that first um, moment, I, I'm dyslexic. I find reading hard work, but just the that, that biography, not just for a good story, but to show me what God can do with a life that's dedicated to him. Mm. I, I never forget reading the, the biography of uh, the Ten Boom family uh, in um, in Holland. And there's yeah. a great line there while uh, Corey and Betsy are in a concentration camp, uh, Corrie turns to Betsy and says, I can't go on. And Betsy said, Corrie, there is no pit so deep that God is not deeper still. Mm. Now, that sort of line I'd have never really have got had I not read a book. Now, biography is, is precious to me for those reasons, but reading Christian books, like you were saying earlier, a bit like exercise, we are transformed by the renewing of our mind. And mm. so if we feed our mind with good stuff, we can be transformed for the sake of God and, and for his glory. And so reading plays a huge part in that. Yeah. I think you made a great point there, too, because we tend to sometimes over-spiritualize, like, oh, to be a Christian is to pray and think on spiritual things. But Jesus includes the mind as mm. one of the ways that we love God and others, which sort of implies like taking care of our brains is a spiritual practice. It's a spiritual formation thing. And I you're kind of like the books guy on our show today. I'd love to know what what are you reading right now that's kind of got you uh, kind of got you excited or it's, or it's showing you something new. Well, I, I mentioned biography there. Um, there's a great one called We Died Before We Came Here. It's the story of Emily Foreman and her husband who went to North Africa to reach Muslims. That That's mm. left a, a recent impact on me. Uh, another one, uh, this one's by a, a British author, so you'll have to forgive me, but um, it's called Incomparable, and it looks at 60 characteristics uh, of God. Hmm. Each one is only three chapters long, so uh, sorry, three pages long per chapter, so it's very manageable. Hmm. But it's just wonderfully rich in helping um, put our, our mind and our, our thoughts on who God is. And then just remarkable that we can have a relationship with him. So yeah. that's incomparable by Andrew Wilson. There'd be two, uh, two highlights. Um, if I could have one more that just really stands out. Timothy Keller has a little book called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. Mm -hmm. Now, I try and read this at least twice a year. It is so helpful. It's only 48 pages long, so don't think I'm really clever or anything. <laughs> but I must have read it almost 100 times now because wow. its message is so important. It only takes an hour or so to read, but <laughs> The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness by Timothy Keller. Oh, that's helpful. Again, that's Jonathan Carswell, CEO of 10ofthose.com. That's the number 10, 10ofthose.com. We'd encourage all of you to go out and check out that website. Jonathan, this was really fun. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. 
Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us on this Wednesday afternoon. As always, you can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show, Twitter, Instagram at Common Good Talk, online, 1160hope.com. You can find our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Uh, subscribe, rate, and review. Uh, and Ian, while I was out of town last week, Major League Baseball finally kicked off. Well, that mm-hmm. would be, they didn't kick off. They had their first pitch opening day. Uh, and I don't know how much of this I've talked about on the show, but I'm a huge baseball fan. I'm a New York Mets fan. Uh, you are a Detroit Tiger fan. And uh, I was so excited for baseball to start. My son and I watched uh, the opening day uh, on our phones and uh, while sitting by the beach. I know that makes you jealous. And uh, it was just so good to have baseball back, even though it was kind of weird with no fans and fake crowd noise and this and that. But I still was taken aback by how much I enjoyed real baseball and uh, and just watching it. And so before getting into the complicated nature of baseball right now, what did you did you have some of those same feelings to just see real real sports and real baseball being played again? Yeah, this will be maybe an unpopular opinion. I didn't love the piped-in crowd noises. Oh, I did. Did you really? Yeah. Why? It, why? What did you like about it? I think it would be weird if you were there seeing it. But for me, it was like the watching it on TV, it was that background noise you're used to. So I kind yeah. of found myself forgetting that it was piped in. Um, like the cardboard cutouts or the uh, all that, it's all kind of hokey. But I did find some of the... Um, the uh, piped in noise to be, mm, it, it got my mind thinking that it's baseball again a little bit. So I guess so, but I could see why. Did you just not like the fakeness of it? Is that it? Yeah, I guess it just, it just felt weird. Now they, it seemed like there was a lot more tight shots than usual. I wonder if that was strategic, like show as little of the empty stadium as possible. Uh, mm-hmm. So there were times where I was like, oh, I, I forgot a little bit, but then when they would go on a wide shot, I was like, Oh, wait a minute. This is all synthesized. None of this is real. Yes. This was yes. weird. So I don't, yeah, I don't know. It just, the whole thing felt strange to me. I mean, again, a small price to pay. I was, I was glad just to see baseball again. I don't know if you saw the Cubs game at all on Fox, I believe on Saturday where they literally had computer generated fans, like on yeah. the TV screen where it looked like it was a full house and it looked kind of real. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That was pretty uh, impressive. I will give them that. Yeah. And so uh, good to have baseball back, but you're quickly reminded that the world that we live in, the country we live in right now is going through a pandemic and things are not normal. And it's not just by watching a game and seeing empty seats, but uh, the Florida Marlins Mm -hmm. after just three games, uh, they had an outbreak and uh, it's weird. Like I've been doing a lot of reading about it, but they essentially, as of today have 18 players and coaches. So 16 players and two coaches have tested positive for COVID-19. So that is uh, not just an outbreak. That's a big outbreak. Uh, And so they have had to already, after three games, sideline the Marlins. The Marlins aren't playing for at least another week. They sidelined the Phillies for two games because the Phillies were the ones playing the Marlins. And so already things got all screwed up. And uh, interestingly, today they announced that they tested, in their testing of the rest of the league, outside of the Marlins, there were zero positive tests. And that's just the weird nature of this uh, coronavirus. But the Marlins themselves, um, from a hotspot in South Florida, had 18 different people. 
And so when that hit, it kind of drew you back into reality a little bit going, oh, okay, it's not just fun and games and baseball. And now we have football trying to come back, basketball and hockey. They're doing it in a bubble and that's going really well so far. Um, But I wonder what was your reaction when you heard or read the story about the Marlins? Did it make you feel at all guilty about enjoying baseball again or they should stop or just, hey, this is what it's going to be like now? I mean, my my first thought was, what were they doing? Like, like, they have a big jacuzzi party? Like, what? How (laughs) suspicious is that? They're like, hey, zero cases everywhere else. And then a dozen plus here. You're like, what? Wait, what? How? So I don't know. I I wonder if we'll ever hear that story. Like, was one person in particular kind of careless, or did what did the whole team sort of just decide? Like, hey, doesn't really matter. Everyone's being overly cautious. I, I would be curious to know the backstory. I wonder if you know five years from now we'll see documentaries that kind of give us a peek behind how all this stuff happened. But yeah, I don't know that it led to guilt necessarily. I don't know. I don't know. That's a good question though because. I'm not nearly as big a baseball fan as you are. So for me, it, I really loved having it back, but I wasn't like desperately craving it the way I know a lot of, a lot of people are. So for me, it was sort of like, is this, if this, if this blows up any bigger, is that worth it? You know, like it does raise some other philosophical existential questions about like what we're willing to do or risks we're willing to take for the sake of sports slash entertainment slash money. Right. So, you know, all the, all those factors. And I know that there's a bit of a domino effect, but uh, like football, that's going to be, that's going to be interesting, right? Oh my gosh. I can't imagine how football is going to get through this unless they just say, uh, we're just going to get through it. And when guys get sick, they're going to get sidelined. And you know, that sounds really harsh, but when there's that much money involved and that much, this, I think that's how football is going to proceed. But Dave Martinez, he's the pre- uh, the president, the manager of the defending World Series champion Washington Nationals. He got emotional last year. He missed some games because of a heart ailment. Hmm. And he said this, uh, Martinez said, my level of concern went from about an eight to a 12. This thing really hits home now that you've seen half a team get infected and go from one city to another. I have friends on that Miami team and it really stinks. I'm not going to lie or sugarcoat anything. It's not good for them. It's not good for anybody. I have guys in our clubhouse that are really concerned as well. And for me, this is uh, my family. And so Martinez, he was real emotional and saying, but there's other guys going, Hey, this is what we signed up for when we said, let's play. Uh, Yeah. I don't know, man. I, I felt really weird because, uh, you said those of us who just really longed for it. I love baseball. And my first thought was, oh, please don't end the season. <laughs> just please don't stop the season. And mm. it was, it, I was like, that's that's really shallow of me. But that was my first thought. But you think of the number of things in our culture right now where we're like, I just want it normal again, right? I just want normal church. I just want normal school. I just want normal. I want to be able to go to a movie or whatever else. And I think that's one of the things that's just really draining about the coronavirus. Uh, but it's also what's getting us in trouble because people start jumping the gun and going back to normal. So in some, in some ways, I think MLB is a bit of a microcosm for how we're all feeling. Just go, nope, there's a lot of people like, nope, we're just going to pretend nothing's wrong and keep going. And others who want to shut everything down. I think that debate kind of, it, it is a picture of what's going on in our culture in general. Yeah, and I think it's you highlight an interesting point. I had asked a question on Facebook a couple of days ago. I said, you know, what do you miss most about a pre-COVID world? And the responses were both like heartwarming and heartbreaking. A lot of people said, you know, I miss hugs or I miss being able to gather in person for church. Or, I miss being able to see my granddaughter. And then my brother weighed in 
He said, uh, I miss the 12 people in my neighborhood alone who have died since this began. And oh it was really sobering because a lot of the things that people were mentioning, although really important, significant things, a lot of them, yeah. um, my brother Sam had just this way of like, yeah, those are things though, but that people are losing their lives, you know? So when you even step back and talk about your own processing of like, man, I really want, I just want baseball to be on TV. I want, I just, yep. I miss it and it has significance and that's meaningful. But we also, I think, you know, we have to ask the tough questions like at what cost or to what risk or to right. what end. And uh, we're obviously going to probably be all over the map with how we answer that, which will make the next, you know, six months really tricky. Yeah. And closing this discussion, this ESPN article that we're reading from, uh, it ends it kind of poignantly this way, what we're just saying. It says, the games go on, the news goes on, none of it makes me feel good. <laughs> and mm. I think that is the reality. I would love to know your thoughts. Are you excited about baseball being back? Does it make you nervous? Do you think it's a bad idea? You can do that at our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Well, coming up next, we're going to talk about John MacArthur and the stance his church took this past weekend. That's coming up next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about John MacArthur opening his church up this week. And then we're joined by Dr. Michael Brown. You're listening to The Common Good. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, Ian, because I got back from vacation, I lost what day it is. It's Wednesday. What do we call Wednesday here on the show? How dare you say we? Every time you try to <laughs> lasso me into this, and I emphatically say, no, thank you, sir. It is a good hump day. Hope you're having a good day. Oh, uh, as a reminder, you can find our content on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show. You can find us online at uh, 1160hope.com. And our podcast, wherever it is you get your podcast, subscribe, rate, and review. That does help us. We're really grateful to those of you uh, who do that. Well, Ian, uh, this was all over the internets this weekend, uh, whereas two weeks ago or three maybe now, Andy Stanley came out and talked about how his mega church, North Point Church down in Atlanta, uh, he just came out and said, we are not going to meet uh, until at the earliest in person, the end of the year, basically, is what he said, 2021, uh, January of 2021. Uh, and it kind of gave cover for a lot of people to kind of do the same thing. Mm. Well, uh, on the opposite end of the spectrum, out of California this weekend, uh, at the end of last week, uh, John MacArthur wrote a blog post to his church, Grace Community Church. Now, they're in, I believe, Orange County, which is a huge hotspot right now. And the governor of California basically um, mandated that churches no longer meet, or at least suggested, I, I want to make sure to get that right, uh, that they no longer meet. And uh, John MacArthur, who is very well known, uh, countless numbers of books, been pastoring for however many years. He is one of the more well-known pastors out there, and his church is enormous. And he said... Uh, this is a time for us to defy the government. And he said, we're going to meet. And everyone was like, wow, this is okay. And uh, then the pictures came out from this past Sunday, and I'm sure that you saw them. They're up on our Facebook page. Uh, but it was a packed house with barely a mask to be seen. Old people, young people, people 
crammed in like there was nothing going on. And I, I got to be honest, for the first time I saw that picture, my mouth just kind of dropped. I was like, mm. oh, my gosh. And uh, they uh, standing ovation from MacArthur. He was pretty defiant from the pulpit. And nobody knows what the state of California is going to do. Uh, but Ian, this was the biggest pastor that we've seen, I would say, on the kind of the national level to say, nope, we're changing. We're going back and then kind of go full fledged back. So I have some thoughts. I'd like to hear them. Uh, I actually found what I think is a pretty helpful resource. Heidel, Heidel blog, which is clever. Heidel, Heidelblog.net. Not okay. Heidelberg. That's okay. It's not that clever. Um, it's, it's long. And I don't think I have time to read all of it. So do you mind if I just read some of the uh, some of the highlights here? You referenced would, a couple of articles from Julie Royce and uh, Baptist News. But this yep. one I found pretty helpful. So let me try and skip around. I should have taken notes. It said, Grace Community Church published a statement last week. Christ, not Caesar, is the head of the church. Their principal argument is explicit in the title. They explicitly refuse to argue for their right to gather indoors on the basis of the Constitution or Supreme Court decisions or dissents. They appealed mainly to the scriptures and their congregational statement of faith. They addressed Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2, both of which chapters enjoined submission by Christians and even the visible church to the civil magistrate. But they deny that the civil magistrate has any jurisdiction over the church. God has not granted civic rulers authority over the doctrine, practice, or polity of the church. They do not seem to distinguish between indoor and outdoor gatherings and argue civil authorities have, quote, exceeded their legitimate jurisdiction. They reject any Restrictions on the number of people who are able to gather arguing, quote, when officials restrict church attendance to a certain number, they attempt to impose a restriction that in principle makes it impossible for the saints to gather as the church. Thus, they declare we cannot and will not acquiesce to a government imposed moratorium on our weekly congregational worship or other regular corporate gatherings. Compliance would be disobedience to our Lord's clear commands. So that's sort of the setup again. I'm I'm going to make sure we get this posted on the Facebook page, actually, because it it is a really, uh, I think, balanced dissection of not only some of the doctrinal scriptural claims, but some of what seems to be contradictory, I guess, is maybe the way to put it. Um, let me see. There's one here that I thought in particular. So he says, neither Romans 13 nor First Peter 2 condition our obedience even to pagan magistrates upon their being just, fair, or right on these issues. The test is whether they have commanded us to disobey God. Clearly, GCC did not regard the initial restriction in principle as contrary to God's moral will. Thus, GCC's about-face seems about as coherent as the state's policies. Uh, the GCC statement cites Acts 529, but does not reckon with uh, what the text says in context. Has GCC made the case that the public health restrictions currently in place would require us to disobey God. The statement seems to reflect some tension in that regard. This I thought was interesting. Were the building on fire, GCC would have safely evacuated everyone present in the interest of public safety. Were, in the case, that leadership of GCC believers that masks and social distancing contributed to the safety of the congregation, they would have required them just as they require attenders to be reasonably clothed and to evacuate in case of fire. Even in the case that GCC leadership evidently discounts the value of masks and social distancing, they have adequately accounted for their neighbors, Christians and non-Christians. The statement says that non-Christians will not understand why GCC felt compelled to meet. That is likely true. But what if the photos of the assembly show congregants masked and distanced? Sort of your point. Again, there's yeah. a whole lot more meat here that I don't, I don't want to take the entire the entire time to unpack. But I, I think at the very least, and my buddy Aaron commented on our uh, on our Facebook page. Actually, I think he, he, he put it pretty well. Um, he, he seems like 
in his in his mind, he said, it seems like MacArthur is more interested in being right than doing the right thing. And in his mind, he said, that's consistent with how I've seen him behave. And so this sort of seems par for the course. And uh, I'd be curious to know what what you think. I don't know if you've heard the message or not. I've heard some of it that where he sort of unpacks the rationale. He spends most of the sermon actually talking about it specifically, right. which I thought was interesting. But um, yeah, I'd be curious to know what you think. Yeah, I didn't. I'm, I'm just seeing some quotes here from him, from his sermon, where he said that a return to what we love the most, the fellowship of the saints and the worship of our Lord. And he went on later to say, there have been many people who don't understand why we do this. We understand that. We understand that the world does not understand the importance of church, uh, of the church. The world doesn't understand that it's not just essential. It's the only hope of eternal life for doomed sinners. Uh People have been very concerned to make sure people's physical lives are protected in the process, shut down places where there's hope for their spiritual lives to be transformed, where they can live eternally in the presence of God. And so, uh, you know, it does speak a lot to how MacArthur uh, sees the church, right? Like it is primarily a gathered congregation on a Sunday morning. Um, but, uh, you know, I think what just struck me was, okay, if you want to gather, then let's at least put people in masks and let's try to go about uh, making this as safe as a, as it could possibly be. But instead, you know, his assistant pastor was, uh, was tweeting pictures li- basically as it was going on. And it just was with exclamation points, John MacArthur preaching to a packed house. Yeah. And it felt like a thumbing of the no, excuse me, a thumbing of the nose really at, uh, those who might be concerned. And I was just surprised, quite frankly, by how full it was. My worry is uh, the same way we talked about how Andy Stanley being so visible and taking his stand was going to give a lot of cover and a lot of almost license for others to do so. I worry that MacArthur doing this, we're going to see lots of smaller churches, smaller than his, still big churches, just throwing all caution to the wind. Cause that's essentially what they did. Yeah. They threw all caution to the wind. And, um, and they, you know, whether it be singing or sitting closely or doing whatever uh, to make a point. And uh, I worry that now this is going to be kind of he's going to blaze a trail for people who agree with that. And it just, you know, it goes back to do you believe that this that this pandemic, do you believe that this virus is a big deal or not? And he he used some statistics about how few people die from it, that that mm-hmm. he kind of showed his cards. And so. Uh, I found it troubling. It doesn't mean that you can't meet, you can't do things, but just kind of the lack of of any steps to bring protection and kind of acknowledge that we're in the midst of a pandemic, uh, I found really troubling. So Ian talked about the blog post we're going to put up at our Facebook page and others. We would love to hear what you've got to think uh, about John MacArthur and uh, his church opening up this past weekend. Well, coming up next, uh, Dr. Michael Brown. Uh, He is the author of a new book called Evangelicals at the Crossroads. Will we pass the Trump test? Dr. Michael Brown is going to join us next here on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us on this Wednesday afternoon. Well, we are thrilled to be joined right now by the author of a new book called Evangelicals at the Crossroads. Will we pass the Trump test? This is Dr. Michael Brown. Dr. Brown, thanks so much for joining us today. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Before we jump into the book, uh, could you just introduce yourself to our audience? Yes, I'm a Jewish believer in Jesus, came to faith late in 1971 as a heroin shooting LSD using hippie rock drummer. (laughs) 
And since then, I've been passionate about taking the gospel around the world, taking the gospel to the Jewish people. And we got a real burden for revival in the Church of America, a real burden to see a gospel-based moral and cultural revolution in our society. And I've been involved in, in scholarship, apologetics, uh, Bible teaching for decades. Got a daily radio show as well and write a bunch of opinion columns every well, week. Well, it's good to have a fellow drummer on the show. I'm excited about that. Thanks for <laughs> Come on, man. That's it. Maybe just talk drums. I'd be okay the rest with that. Brian can just leave, and you and I can. Uh, we can. I'll just. I'll, we can I'll, argue Zildjian versus yeah. Sabian for the next nine minutes. Um, I'm. I'm curious. <laughs> maybe this is a bit of an obvious question, but why do you think Donald Trump has been such a divisive figure, particularly for evangelicals? Yeah. So on the one hand, I mean, he's an incredibly divisive person. You love him or you hate him. It's just the way he is. But it's been unique for evangelicals because, on the one hand. He has done a lot for evangelical causes, pro-life, pro-family, pro-Israel, pro-religious liberty, stood up for a lot of things that are important to us and, and done things in ways beyond what other presidents have done. In fact, has, has been a friend of evangelicals and has kept his door wide open to evangelicals in ways other presidents haven't. At the same time, he being who he is, not just his background, but the way he conducts himself, the kind of person he is. He's done a lot to hurt the evangelical cause in general. In other words, to the extent we're associated with him, it can make Jesus look bad or it can make us look like hypocrites because we're the values voters. We're the ones shouting morality matters, character counts. And yet we're supporting Trump. On the other hand, we have good reason to support Trump. So it's, it's a real interesting situation. That's why I wrote Evangelicals at the Crossroads to, to help us sort this out. And, and you talk about the Trump test, and I'd, I'm wondering, what do you mean when you talk about the Trump test? Yeah, I mean it in two ways. First, can we legitimately support Donald Trump as the better choice between him and Joe Biden now or him and Hillary in 2016? Can we support him as president without compromising our testimony? Is it possible to do that? I believe we can, but it has to be done rightly. The other part of the Trump test is as fellow believers in Jesus— can we unite around Jesus even if we differ over Trump? Because right now we're savaging yeah. each other. And the always Trumpers and the never Trumpers, you know, one side saying, if you're a Christian, you have to vote for Trump. And the other side saying, if you're a Christian, you can't vote for Trump. So in the midst of these differences, can we somehow unite around Jesus, put the cross before the flag? That's the other part of the Trump mm -hmm. test. One of the things that we hear a lot on the show is the the notion of maybe like a a double standard from evangelical leaders that people have seen over the years, evangelical leaders that maybe historically had held character to a very high standard and people feeling like they've abandoned that particular mantra. How, how do you respond to people who are feeling disenfranchised by Christian leaders? They see saying, you know, 20 years ago you said this was massively important and now you seem to be less outspoken about that as being a high value, especially for this office. How do you, how do you address that? There's some truth to it. And, and in my book, I have some pretty intense quotes from major leaders 20 years ago that are strong Trump supporters today, you know, why they couldn't vote for Bill Clinton and all of the morality issues that came up with that. So on, on the one hand, for sure, we have seemed hypocritical to the extent that we defend Trump at any cost, to, to the extent that, that we, we can't agree that something was wrong or should have done. That does make us look bad. But then let's flip it around. Isn't the slaughter of the unborn in the womb a moral issue? Isn't the oppression of religious minorities in China a moral issue? Isn't standing up for freedom and of conscience a moral issue? 
And hasn't Trump shown strong morality by standing for all those things and by not backing down and keeping his promises? So we need to say, yes, character does count. Morality does matter, in which case Trump has been his own worst enemy. We have to say that, yeah, I wish he didn't tweet that. I wish he wasn't juvenile. I wish he didn't throw this one under the bus, so call this one a dog. Yeah, that bothers us. But when we weigh things out, I would rather have someone that's nasty and fighting for the lives of the unborn than someone that's not nasty fighting for abortion. I'd rather have someone that can be juvenile at times standing against the tyranny of communist China than someone who's not as juvenile but cooperates with communist China. And to me, those are moral choices. What we have to do is, is say, yes, I don't like that either. I agree with you, but there are moral reasons for voting for him. And because character does count, he ends up being his own worst enemy at times. I'm intrigued by your, your phrase, putting the cross before the flag. Uh, some people out there might be going, what do you exactly mean by that? So could you explain that phrase some more? And then how do we do that? How do we put the cross before the flag? Yeah, and, and that's how I end the book with a 10-point strategy for how we can pass the Trump test. And it's not calling people to vote for Trump. I, I believe many will, but that's not the point of it. The point of it is how should we live? So what do I mean by putting the cross before the flag? Some of us seem to be so consumed with patriotism, with make America great, that that becomes our highest and greatest value. I, I can assure you that the believers in ancient Rome, as as Nero was was burning them like like torches, that they were not saying we want to make Rome great. They had a great commission mentality. Their mentality was our loyalty is first and foremost to Jesus. We must proclaim to the world, Jesus died for our sins. He's our savior. He gets our heart, our loyalty, our life. Trump is our president. He gets our vote. We need to to say we're not going to get caught up in election fever. We are not going to put patriotism before the kingdom of God. We're going to be kingdom of God people first. We're going to put allegiance to Jesus first, and then we'll put politics in its proper place. And we won't look to the government to do what only the church through the power of the gospel can do. So I plan to vote for for Trump if things remain as they are between Trump and Biden. Come November, I plan to vote for Trump. But four more years of Donald Trump is not the hope Mm. of America. He, he may be like a wedge in a door that's slamming shut. He may be a, a wedge standing against encroaching socialism or social anarchy or, or radical leftist agendas and things like that. But it's going to take the church rising up in unity and the power of the spirit, preaching a clear message, living godly lives. That's the hope to turn the tide in America. And we've got to put first things yeah. first and put political activity where it belongs, which is not at the yeah, top of right. the list. I'm curious, what would you say when I was asking you about uh, character, particularly among you know Christian leaders and maybe some of what seems like inconsistent positioning? What do you say to the person that says, yeah, but I don't I don't find his behavior just juvenile. I found it downright destructive or toxic or some some might even say evil. Right. For them, for them, what if it's not just about like, sure, he's he's a bit of a goof online, but. His policies are more in line with what I think is important. What do you say to the person that says his rhetoric and behavior is outright deplorable and I don't feel like I have a clean conscience to cast a vote for him? Right. Well, then they have to act by their conscience. I I would never try to get someone to, to compromise their own conviction. And I do believe that there are aspects to his behavior that have been destructive, that have even had a degrading effect on a national level. I believe that's true. 
I also believe the media has exaggerated it. I also believe part of it is Trump fighting back against a constant unrighteous assault. And then the biggest thing is when I have to weigh things out, and this is what everyone has to decide, when I weigh them out, it's still at a point that the large issues, what the courts are going to look like, what freedoms are going to look like for our kids and grandkids, a greater hope to, to, to slow the, the, the shedding of innocent blood. When I compare that with the damage that he may have done or has done, I say he's done more good. And therefore, if I don't vote that way, like Dr. Al Mulder, Southern Baptist leader, he couldn't vote for Trump in 2016. He obviously didn't vote for Hillary. But he said, yes, he's been a huge embarrassment for the church, but I'm voting for him in 2020 because of the alternative. That's what people just have to say. If I don't vote, and if in effect, then that is a vote for for Joe Biden or whoever the other candidate will be. What are the implications of that? And is that a good decision to make? And people just have to weigh that out. Obviously, it would be amazing if Trump was the, the kind, it was like a Mike Pence type of personality, but fought just as much, was just as strong, same backbone, same uncompromising positions for good, but a Mike Pence personality. That would be awesome. That's not the option right now. So weighing the options, does it make sense to cast a vote for Trump for larger moral, cultural, ethical, societal issues? I believe it does. But I would never try to get someone to violate their own conscience. Mm-hmm. I just I, I lay out in the book, I lay out the argument against Trump as strongly as I can from the voice of people who feel just like what you articulated. And then I give the response as to why you can vote for him and even should. And then say, either way, here's how we have to live. And here's what comes first. And that's what I advocate more than anything. So whether Trump is reelected or not. The gospel goes on. Our lives go on. We have to redeem the time, be godly witnesses, make a difference. But I believe the elections are going to be very momentous, and we really should consider carefully how we vote. Other voice hearing is Dr. Michael Brown. His new book, Evangelicals at the Crossroads, Will We Pass the Trump Test? Dr. Brown, this has been really enjoyable. Thanks for joining us today. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thank you for joining us today on this Wednesday afternoon. Hope you're having a great day. Uh, if you're interested in some of the things we talk about, whether it was, uh, you know, the article we did earlier in the show about John MacArthur's church or other things we've discussed today, uh, you can find those articles and you can comment on them and give us your opinion at our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. That is The Common Good Radio Show. Online at 1160hope.com, Twitter and Instagram, uh, Common Good Talk. And you can find our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review. Uh, we are grateful for those of you who do that. Well, at the Christian at Christianity Today, remember when we first started the show, I couldn't say Christianity Today? I do remember that. I feel like I've had growth, if, if for nothing else, in no other spot than being able to say Christianity Today. <laughs> We're all very proud of you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, Meredith Sell did a book review on a book by John Tyson, uh, and the book review is titled this, I'm Awash in Christian Content, but Am I Living Like Christ? A very interesting question, and it starts like this. John, Ty- uh, John Tyson's book is called Beautiful Resistance, The Joy of Conviction in a Culture of Compromise. And so let me begin her book review. It says this, what voices are loudest in my life? That's a great question. 
Last fall, I wrote this question on a sticky note and posted it near my desk as a reminder to examine who I'm listening to and what I'm being formed by. Between the endless streams of social media posts, the cacophony of podcasts and playlists, and the ever-expanding pile of books on my nightstand, I had no shortage of distractions from the voice of God in my life. Uh, What we listen to forms us. The most persistent voices, including the quiet ones whispering lies we're too distracted to notice, can indelibly shape who we are, changing our thoughts, attitudes, and actions. We can say all the right words on Sundays and in small group settings, but when the explicit spiritual agenda has been lifted, how do we live? Are we being shaped into the image of Christ or the image of the world? That's set up right there, man. There are so many different ways to take that. Uh, but what we listen to forms us. Uh, and how am I being formed? What voices are the loudest in my life? Uh, I'm wondering just your reflection on all of those questions that she asked. Yeah, I would go a step further. I don't think it's just what listens, what we listen to forms us. It's also what we do forms us. I think that mm-hmm. we can listen to all the right voices or even maybe specifically begin every day with three hours of meditation, listening to the voice of God. But if we don't actually also live that out, if we're not being an apprentice of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus hmm. is not just to be a learner about Jesus or someone who even just hears from Jesus. I feel like sometimes we elevate hearing from Jesus to the highest aim, which I understand why, and then sort of drop off at the living like Jesus even if we're stumbling along the way, right? I think there's sometimes an assumption mm. that, especially for like new Christians, there can be a trepidation. They're like, well, I mean, I just came from this old life and I don't really know how to do this or how to do that. So it, it kind of keeps us, it keeps us kind of scared or shameful or, or nervous about, you know, putting one foot in front of the next. So I do think it's a great question. What, what we're listening to shapes us, the voices that we, you know, allow to kind of inhabit our head are, are forming us, but it's not the only thing that forms us. I think that it is also action. And I had Jason Pfeffer on earlier and he, he leads the practice at Willow and, and the idea of a, a practice based gathering, a practice based faith. Uh, it can't just simply be about what we know. I mean, think about even Jesus's harshest criticisms were for the people that knew the best content, like, by their mm. metrics, had listened to the right voices, memorized, studied. And yet he says, man, you're tying millstones around people's necks. Like you're putting weights on people and you yourself aren't willing to what? L- lift a finger to, you know, to practice it, to actually put it into action. So I think it, I think it needs to kind of go hand in hand, to be honest. Yeah. So this book's called Beautiful Resistance, The Joy of Conviction in a Culture of Compromise. John Tyson, he's the pastor of Church of the City in New York City. Uh, it says, uh, goes on to say, what does it look like to live as a Christian in the world? What does it look like to model the way of Christ, moving beyond spiritual talk to actually walking as one shaped by the gospel? A little bit of what you just said there. Oh, there you go. These are the underlying questions Tyson poses. Uh, she goes on to say how she listens to him a lot uh, online, his sermons. Uh, she said, Tyson doesn't teach an overly indiv- individualistic self-help Christianity or a sleepy moralism that quotes scripture, but lives as if the Holy Spirit is no longer active. Rather, he preaches a stirring gospel. I hope we all can be described that way. Hmm. Uh, true to its source and confident that God is at work in the world today. Uh, Tyson frames his book with the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, whose commitment to Christ compelled him to boldly oppose Hitler and the Nazis, the dominant forces of his day. 
As Bonhoeffer witnessed German churches capitulating to Nazi powers, he determined that believers needed a deeper discipleship, one that cultivated what Tyson describes as an unflinching loyalty to the cross. He doesn't draw parallels between Nazi Germany and the United States, and he doesn't explicitly name any recent controversies involving evangelicalism evangelicalism and partisan politics, but he is clearly concerned with how such compromises harm the church that God loves. And he's concerned that our culture is doing a better job discipling us than the church. Let me pause there. That's a huge statement right there. Is our culture doing a better job discipling us than the church is? How would you uh, assess that? How would you know if the if we're being discipled more by the culture uh, than by the church? You know, I think uh, a couple of people come to mind. David French, uh, Sky Jatani. There are a couple of people that mm-hmm. I think are doing incredible work to help articulate Dan White Jr. is another one helping comparing and contrasting what actually a life formed by Jesus looks like mm-hmm. because I think that can feel really ethereal right like well I'm not I wasn't born during the time of Jesus I don't even know what that looks like as a business owner or as a mom or as a neighbor and uh, I think that there are I'd always start with the Sermon on the Mount for me that's always like my go-to like okay if I want to know if my psyche, if my behavior, if my soul is being shaped more by Jesus or the gospel or news media and the culture. Um, I, I just, this was just a couple of days ago, actually, someone, I completely forgot about this story. There was a, an interview that Dan Rather had with Mother Teresa, and uh, he asked her, when you pray, what do you, what do you say to God? And she said, oh, I don't say anything. I just listen. And he mm. said, uh, okay, so when God speaks to you, what, what does he say? And she says, he doesn't say anything. He just listens. And then she added, and if you don't understand that, I can't explain it to you. Wow. I thought, that's a mystic. Like, that's someone who understands, like, I want answers. I want God to answer me. I want solutions. I want next steps. I want action items. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think the first time I heard it and then just hearing it last week, it kind of floored me like, oh, yes, that's some of how I know. I'm not properly being formed as an apprentice of Jesus because I'm uncomfortable with that silence. And I want, it's why, mm. I, jump, it's why I jump on my phone every 40 seconds. It's why we yeah. crave news and answers. I don't think craving those things necessarily are bad, but that can often usurp my just simply, you know, John uses the word abide, just simply abiding in Jesus and allowing my heart and soul to be shaped by that is it's both like simple, but difficult. You know what I mean? Like it's, I don't Absolutely. think it's complex, but I think it's really, really difficult to do, especially because of like all the energy that culture often kind of throws at us on the contrary. Man, I'm going to think about that mother Teresa quote. Cause as I hear it, I want to ask her, what do you mean? Right. <laughs> of course, of course. Hear right. her answer that. That is, that is crazy. That book is called beautiful resistance, the joy of conviction and a culture of compromise by John Tyson. You can read this book review of it from Christianity Today at our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Well, coming up next, we're going to end this show with just some good news. Uh, We always love to end the show with good news. That's coming up next year on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for some good news. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us on this Wednesday afternoon. We hope you have a great rest of your night. We're grateful that you've joined us, whether you've joined us uh, on the radio on 1160 uh, or uh, whether you've listened to the podcast here at some point in the future. We're glad that you have. Go ahead and share that podcast 
uh, with a friend. Let them know about it. And uh, we would be grateful for that. Well, Ian, uh, you introduced us uh, to a website called the Good News Network that in this time of so much darkness, really, around the COVID-19 pandemic and other things going on, where it just highlights stories that make you smile, that remind you that there's still good news out there. Uh, and so something we've been doing over the past couple months is sometimes just taking time just to read some of these stories, just to put a smile on our face to end the show uh, on a happy way. So got four of those stories here for us from the Good News Network. Uh, I'm going to let you choose which one you want to do first. Oh, wonderful. And like a good rule follower, I'm just going to do the first one because <laughs> because that's what adults do uh, from goodnewsnetwork.org. After COVID cancels all flights, one man sailed solo across the Atlantic to reach his 90-year-old father. That is incredible. It says, with international passenger flights nixed by the COVID-19 pandemic, Juan Manuel Ballestero embarked on an epic 85-day solo transatlantic voyage from Argentina to Portugal. I could just stop right there Unbelievable. and like add in the sound effect of the mic drop. Like, I just wish I had the capacity to do that. Uh, the article, I'll just read a little bit. It says, most of us know yeah. the adage, you can't go home again. But it seems like Juan Ballestero never got the memo. As the true implications of the COVID-19 crisis grew increasingly dire, Ballestero wanted more than anything, more than anything else, to be reunited with his elderly parents in Argentina in time for his father's upcoming 90th birthday. The problem, Ballestero was in Portugal, and all international flights had been canceled. With a daunting 5,000... 5, <laughs> That's unbelievable. 5,600 miles and the Atlantic Ocean between him and his family, Ballestero was faced with a seemingly insurmountable dilemma, but the 47-year-old mariner came up with a daring solution. He'd simply sail home. Uh, I'll stop there. The, the rest of it is pretty heartwarming. But, uh, man, I, whenever I read stories like this, I'm always like blown away by the power of the human will. Like, yeah, I get the same feeling when I watch people in their eighties finish marathons, you're like, man, you just like put your mind to it and said, Nope, uh, we're, we're making this happen. This guy, 85 days, 85, almost three months by himself on a sailboat to see his parents. I love this story so much. Yeah. That is a good story. I hope my kids would do something like that when they're older. (laughs) (laughs) What are the odds? I think they would. Pretty low. (laughs) Next one. Man is honoring handshake from 28 years ago, splitting lottery jackpot with a friend after winning millions. Amazing. Uh, He said, a handshake's a handshake, said the lottery winner in Wisconsin, who's living up to an agreement made with his buddy almost three decades ago. Friends Tom Cook and Joe Feeney shook hands in 1992, swearing that if either one of the pals won the Powerball jackpot, they would split the winnings, no matter who bought the ticket. Tom of Elk Mound was frozen when he realized the Powerball ticket he bought uh, was the $22 million jackpot winner. (laughs) Afterward, uh, he called Joe in Menominee to tell him the news, and Joe, an avid fisherman, couldn't quite believe it. He called me. uh, Now I see why we have fishermen in here. Uh, He said, he he called me and I said, are you jerking my bobber? Said Joe. I'm uncomfortable. Nope. It's a fishing reference. Fishing reference. Uh, sold in 45 states. The overall odds of winning the Powerball jackpot are one in almost 300. Tom gave his two weeks notice and re- and retired upon learning the news. That is a guy sticking to his word right there. That's a good story. Uh, wasn't there a movie kind of about that? Didn't Nicolas Cage like promise a waitress like he didn't have money for a tip, oh. but he said if, if this ticket wins and then it does win and then it am I remembering that correctly? Or am I just is this like a fever dream? 
No, that I dad, I think so. Was it Nicolas Cage? Yeah. Okay. I, I do remember a movie like that. By the way, I once had somebody in a church that I was working in uh, come up after a service and ask me to pray over their lottery ticket and promise to give half the winnings to the church if they won. <laughs> Did you pray over the lottery ticket, Brian? No, I prayed <laughs> for them. <laughs> uh, it ended called, up in a, yeah. It's called, it's called It Could Happen to You, 1994. Exactly. Oh, okay. I do remember. And it was it Nicholas Cage. Oh, yeah. Oh, good. Well done, man. Well done. <laughs> All right. Uh, this is number three of four here. Uh, racist incident inspires Dad's Club to launch surprise fundraiser to make immigrant family feel welcome. Oh, man. I already love this. The roots of racial prejudice run deep. But when an ugly incident recently cropped up in Ontario, a local social club didn't just nip it in the bud. They planted seeds of hope in its place. Jamaican immigrants Maurice Ellis and his wife Caroline settled in Canada with their daughter, determined to make the most of their adopted homeland. Ellis, who was working two jobs to support his family and help pay his wife's college tuition, joined Dad Club London to network and feel more closely connected to his new community. Like many other local fathers, he found us on uh, on a Facebook group, came out to an event, and fell in love with what we do. Uh, That's from club member Ryan Blake. Uh, Blake also noted the club is proud of his diverse membership. Uh, Mo isn't the first black dad in the club. We have members from all races and backgrounds, including gay dads. After Dad Club London founder and President Jer- uh, Jeremy McCall posted a Black Lives Matter message on the group's Facebook page, Ellis was touched and reached out with gratitude. He told Jeremy that had been the target of racial slurs while working a shift at his second job. It's not just me that it happens to, Ellis was quoted as saying. If you're not mentally strong, it can take a toll. Galvanized by a not-a-my-town attitude, rather than simply offering sympathy, Macau was energized to take action. He organized a secret fundraiser to show Ellis and his family how much the community supported them. Contributors came from the local police union, 70 families, and numerous businesses. The group was able to raise nearly $7,000, wow. and McCall arranged to, uh, arranged to get together last month to surprise Mo. I thought it was a dad club meeting, his wife exclaimed. But in a husband parking lot with members standing six feet apart, Ryan's neighbor, Brent Lively, recorded the touching presentation as tears began streaming down the faces of everyone gathered. Mm, That's a good one. Uh, I'm uh, clearly just doing lottery ones because a single mom donates lottery win anonymously to wounded policemen, but officers track her down to reciprocate. Hmm. It seemed that life was finally giving her a break. A single mom down to her last $7 found a $1 bill in a grocery store parking lot. She walked back into the store, bought a lottery ticket, and won $100. No way. Just like that, her luck was turning around. Most of us in that position would probably keep the $100, breathe a sigh of relief, but not Shatara Sims. Uh, At the urging of her 12-year-old daughter, she decided to donate all of her winnings to the family of a local Kansas City police officer wounded in the line of duty. For the Sims family, the desire to pay it forward is personal. When Shatara's eldest daughter was killed in 2012, Kansas City police officers went above and beyond to support her family as much as possible. She said the detectives were really there for us. They were there for us more than anyone I can imagine. They did lots. They did things they didn't have to do. They came to see my kids. They did a lot. They were the fathers, therapists. They were everything. Not wanting to make a fuss about her generosity, she called the police department and made her donation anonymously. Mm. She told the officers on the phone that she had been dealing with several hardships of her own, recently losing her job due to the COVID-19 pandemic. But in spite of what she was going through, Shatara felt that she wanted to give the $100 to the wounded family. She didn't leave her name and number. She assumed the conversation uh, would be it, and her sense of inner satisfaction would be the end of the story. But it didn't take long, though, until the local police precincts were abuzz. 
a group of officers became determined to find her to express their own thanks. Wow. Uh, after finally locating Shatara, the police department set up a GoFundMe page to help her family with her financial situation. They called it helping the woman with a heart of gold. And the response was overwhelming with strangers and officers donating more than a hundred and forty five thousand dollars. Wow. That right there. Tell you what, she she donated her a hundred dollars and and then they did that for what a great story. I I like how we end these now with some good news. That always leaves me smiling. Hopefully that does for you as well. Again, you can find those at Good News Network. Well, we're glad that you joined us on this Wednesday. We'll be back at it tomorrow from 4 until 6. For Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.